News Talk 1110-993-WBT, hour number three, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. So Jimmy stayed on the line, so we'll get to Jimmy. We were talking about uh, over the last uh, two hours, we've been talking about the president's speech and all of the gaslighting and such. And uh, Jimmy, welcome to the program. Thanks for hanging on. What's going on? Hey there, Pete. Hey. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how many Trump candidates are in this this midterm election? It has to be the the most he's ever really put out there. So, uh, well, he he doesn't put candidates out there. He's not actually but, going out recruiting candidates, you know. But you know, a lot of them he's endorsed. Right. Well, they ask for his endorsement, and then he gives it. He doesn't give the money, but um, I mean, Don, yeah, Donald Trump is not. He's not building a a stable of loyalists to him. Like he's not personally doing that, but he's but he's giving endorsements when people ask him, and then people advise him: yes, endorse this guy; no, don't endorse that guy. Whatever. So, yeah, I don't. So, I, I like I'm I I just push back on the idea that he's actually doing any of this due diligence and he's doing any recruiting of these candidates. So, uh, so is the question, how many of his endorsements, uh, how many of his endorsed candidates win? Well, now, they think, I've seen that they've win quite a bit. There's a handful that haven't won, yeah. but they win quite a bit. Uh, to me, that, that speech was last night was, you know, uh, leave the Trump candidates alone. Don't bring them in here. They're going to cause all kind of havoc, which I think most of them are, even though McConnell and uh, I can't think of the other guy. McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy. Yeah. You know, they're going to try their best to wrangle them in, but I, I think they're there just to wreak havoc. Yeah, well, they very well could be. Yeah, sure. They very well could be. Uh, you know, same thing happened with the Tea Partiers, too, and McConnell crushed them. So... Uh, I'm sure that's going to be a fight if the Senate goes uh, Republican. That'll be a fight that is going to have to work itself out internally inside the GOP, um, especially if it's close. You know, if it's like a 51-49 Senate, the, uh, the, the you know, Trump-endorsed MAGA Republicans, uh, if they are willing to, you know, jam up the works, they become more powerful, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I think uh, so. I think that yeah, absolutely, Jimmy. I appreciate your call. I think that there's um, there's obviously a lot of upside for Trump on this because if he he's made these endorsements, right? And uh, like Jimmy said, and I agree, you know, not all of them are going to win. But considering the red wave, if it happens, if that is how this works out, you would have a lot of Republicans winning. So just by the numbers, you would have a lot of his endorsed candidates winning too. And because of that, he would be able to point to all of those winners and say they were my endorsed candidates and they won because of me. Right. He'll be able to make that argument. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. Every race is different. Every candidate's different. But that's the argument he will make. And strategically, politically, it makes sense to do so, especially if the rumors are true that he's fixing to make an announcement that he's running for president and he's going to do so right after the midterm election and they're sending out these signals now to block everybody from making any move before he makes his announcement so we'll see yeah i I don't know but i think there's a lot of upside for him if there is a red wave despite the fact that he hasn't really been 
funding any of these candidates. And therein lies, I heard um, uh, Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, he's on with Bo and Beth on Mondays. And um, he was talking about all of these other Republicans that are running around doing uh, fundraisers and rallies for candidates. People like Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, right? They're going around, and and why they are doing that is, first off, you know, they have aspirations to run for president, probably. Um, But the other is that you don't want, for example, Ted Budd. Got the endorsement from Trump early on, but who has been funding Ted Budd's campaign so far, right? Who's been running all of the ads? Uh, Club for Growth, right? They were the ones that came in heavy against Macquarie. They've continued to run ads, but who else? It's Mitch McConnell's group. Well, what does that mean? Mike Pence comes to town. Campaigns for Ted Budd. What does that mean? It means that they're trying to make sure that Ted Budd knows it wasn't just Trump that brought you. That you're here because we helped you too. Not that it's you got to pick us over Trump right now, but it's when you get into the Senate, we are not your enemy. We're, we helped get you here, too. And, yes, there are probably going to be some political favors that will get called in at some point. But that's what that's all about, right? It's to, it's to you know, build goodwill and to make sure that they know that you showed up for them. Let me get to this because I didn't, yeah, I didn't uh, get to this in the first hour, and I meant to. I totally meant to. There's a piece at pjmedia.com by a fellow named Lincoln Brown. Sorry, a person named Lincoln Brown. I do not know what gender they identify as. Anyway, headline, an ex-leftist reacts to Biden's speech about democracy. First of all, the United States of America is not a democracy. Dear God, this is Civics 101. America's a republic. It was designed as a republic because the framers knew that democracies could easily descend into mob rule. That includes mobs you like. All right, number two. The man who attacked Paul Pelosi is a mentally ill drug addict whose interests and intentions were all over the map. Third, no one is buying MAGA Republicans anymore. You've ridden said horse into the ground. It is dead. Leave it be. It was not the vast majority of Republicans who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Heck, it wasn't even the majority of the people at the rally. You and your party have trotted out the routine so many times that any dramatic value it may have had is lost on everyone but yourselves and your pet media. Nary a word from you about the sieges in cities by anarchists or the threats against a Supreme Court justice. You cry crocodile tears over J6 and talk about unifying a nation while finding any reason to raid the homes of abortion opponents and ignore the destruction of pregnancy centers. You want your fellow Americans to help you meet this day? All right. Well, maybe your fellow Americans are worried about putting gas in the tank, heating their homes, making their rent or mortgage. Maybe they're reeling from the fact that you and your media lied to them about a drug that did nothing to prevent the spread of a disease and watched their businesses and livelihoods evaporate. And you and the people who profited from it could not have cared less. Maybe the voters are hearing about the supply chain being interrupted by a lack of diesel fuel or an impending railroad strike, which, despite your crowing about fixing it, may occur after the election after all. 
Maybe they're worried about getting attacked on the street or having their stores or boutiques cleaned out. They know how your allies are trying to divide and judge their kids based on the color of their skin and mutilate their growing bodies. Some don't feel safe outside their homes and barely feel safe inside their homes. Some still remember the Afghanistan debacle. Some of them are even worried about nuclear war. I mean, I wasn't even alive the last time that concern was on the table. So maybe they understand that you want them to help you meet this day so that you and your people can stay in office. But these people don't even know what the next day will bring for them. And they do not have the financial cushion that you and your party leaders and mouthpieces have. It's uh, just uh, the highlights from a larger piece. Lincoln Brown at pjmedia.com. It's well worth the read. Share it. I also have some advice for some new voters. This was by John Gabriel over at uh, uh, the azcentral.com. Lives in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, He says his uh, daughters have reached voting age, and so he's getting a lot of questions from them about the midterm elections. And so he gave them some well-thought-out dad advice. (laughs) So I'll tell you what he told them in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. John Gabriel writes at uh, and is editor-in-chief at ricochet.com. He's a contributor to The Republic and, I mean, not like America, The Republic, but the publication called The Republic, as well as azcentral.com. I believe that's the, The Republic is the newspaper in Arizona, or, yeah, one of them. Anyway, he had a piece the other day, um, and he's a very talented writer, he's funny, but uh, he had some advice to his daughters because they uh, they both turned uh, voting age. I don't know if they're twins, but they're voting age. He says, I am getting a lot of questions now about the midterm elections. Where do I drop off my ballot? How many propositions are there? Why can't I do this on my iPhone? You know, stuff like that. As a responsible citizen, I kindly offered them my ballot so they could copy my choices exactly. But that was shot down fast. My eldest daughter reconsidered but only to ensure she chose the opposite in every category. She's sneaky like that. Still, it's important to pass on family traditions so they too can become responsible citizens like their wise patriarch. The first objective lesson, or sorry, the first objective of my lesson plan, he says, was simple. Crush their idealism. (laughs) The day I turned 18, I had a list of political heroes. If my preferred candidate is elected, the nation will be saved. All their policies will be signed into law. They guaranteed it. Yeah, but it turned out not a single politician could turn Washington upside down, even if they wanted to, by the way, and most don't want to. There is a big difference, though, between being skeptical and cynical, okay? So once you crush the idealism, you want to foster skepticism, not cynicism, right? The cynic assumes that every politician is a shady liar. The skeptic knows that a decent number are doing the best they can. The latter attitude, by the way, is more accurate and it's a whole lot healthier. Even if you happen to get a handful of good leaders working together, they still can't fix everything. Our system is designed to move very, very slowly with a lot of compromise along the way. 
So, he tells his daughters, avoid idealism, embrace optimism, focus on a politician's actions instead of their words. Better yet, this is a great piece of advice, follow the policies you care about rather than the personality asking for your support. That's a great piece of advice. Follow the issue, not the person. If a candidate can advance your pet issues or you know two or three or four of them, whatever, then give them your vote. If those are the things that matter most to you and this person can advance that issue, give them your vote. That's far more important than their speaking voice or their hairstyle. He says, I still get enthused about a governor here or a senator there, but most contests are a lesser of two evils. In those cases, ask... Which of these clowns will harm me slightly less than the other? It ain't inspiring, but it gets the job done. <laughs> so be great advice. Which one of these candidates is going to harm me less? And, you know, your mileage may vary on that. Um, what else? Oh, I mentioned this earlier. There was... Uh... So, well, before I get to the diesel story... We had dinner last night with some old neighbors, and um, one of the things that we it came up, we were talking about this, which was, you know, all of the people that say, because uh, we, we, we were talking about recycling, and, you know, which is better, plastic bags or, or paper bags, and you know, we saw some story that said that the plastic bags are actually the ones that you should be using. The plastic bags, and when you recycle them, that's the key, like you, when you have so much of them, you bring them back. Like, unlike me, I just take the plastic bags, I fill them with all the plastic straws, I take them right to the ocean, dump them right in there, I try to shove them up, you know, uh, sea turtle noses and stuff, I try to do that. Um, and at one point, though, he said, like, it's the thing that drives me nuts about, for example, the climate change people who are telling you to give up all of your, you know, possessions and, you know, go burn cow dung um, to save Gaia Earth, and... Um, it's just, it's one of these things where you're flying around the world and you're landing in these uh, far off places to tell everybody to stop burning the fossil fuel and all this. How about you do one thing? How about you just fix one thing? Just, th that's it. Just focus on a single item. And in, in this case, for the environmental side of it, how about fix recycling? Just fix that. What's the deal? How many numbers do they take now? Is it, are they down to like one? Not the number one. I don't even know what number they take. It's like, oh, you can take this color uh, food carton if you wash it out, but not this other color food carton. You can recycle this bottle, but only if it has a neck that's, you know, 6.23 centimeters or shorter, anything above that, then no, we don't take it. And don't you dare put the lid on, unless, of course, it's this other thing, and then you can put the lid on that, and then we'll take that. But don't make it glass, because we can't really do much with glass, and trying to stop buying it, and no one's recycling. I don't understand how is it, after all this time, the people who so care about the environment have not been able to figure out the recycling process. What's going on with that? How about fix that, guys? Fix that first. Before you try to clear every single molecule of air, how about just fix the freaking recycling process? Sorry. I don't know where that came from. A major company that tracks the availability of fuel on Friday issued an alert 
for a diesel fuel shortage in the southeastern United States, including both Carolinas. The alert came from Mansfield Energy. It includes Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Maryland. The fuel supply and logistics company noted, quote, extremely high prices in the Northeast, along with supply outages along the Southeast. The alert also said conditions are rapidly devolving, quote unquote, with economics changing significantly daily. Quote, at times, carriers are having to visit multiple terminals to find supply, which delays deliveries and strains local trucking capacity, the alert said. The U.S. Energy Information Administration reported back in October winter fuels outlook forecast that the diesel fuel inventories on the East Coast at the end of last month were already 45% below the five-year average. Over the past two weeks, diesel supply has fallen to just 25 days of supply. That is below the 35 to 40 days that are typically more comfortable for fuel markets. Mansfield issued the code red for the Southeast, asking for a 72-hour notice for deliveries so that fuel can be secured. This from oilprice.com. Multi-year low inventories and constraints in supply are exacerbating a diesel shortage in the U.S., especially on the East Coast. There are a number of reasons for this. Um, I will get to them. But we're about three weeks away. That's what we have a three-week supply. That's essentially what we're looking at. And if it keeps getting worse, prices are going to go through the roof. You got a lot of refineries converting over. At some point, right? At some point, this becomes so obvious it becomes undeniable. We have got to make more energy here. Although a lack of diesel might make my commute a little bit easier. So but no, Monica got a tweet here. It says, Pete, you'll be old one day too. That's, I don't think so. No, I had an arrangement with God. Right. I had an arrangement with God, which was, uh, I would never grow old and so far so good. That's working right. Uh, also, on the advice to um, to the voters, uh, leading with your values will or and voting. You know, if you find the issue, not the candidate, right? Things that matter to you, find these issues that matter most to you, and then find the people that align with you on those issues, right? Don't go after the person; go after the issue, and. Uh, uh, leading with your values will keep you from falling for the shiny objects. Yeah, uh, chasing the the laser pointer, you know? Like, oh, this guy says this, and then, oh, they totally flipped on it. And then you won't be so heartbroken. That's the thing. Poli- I always warn people, politicians will break your heart. It's it's kind of what they do. Just, and can't, they, as candidates, they do it to their campaign people. It, it's because they're humans. They're humans, and then they get jammed up. They get, they owe people favors. They have to cast votes that are difficult. They're going to break your heart. So, um, all right, let me get back to this diesel shortage uh, uh, story. 
So multi-year low inventories and constraints in supply are exacerbating a diesel shortage in the United States, especially on the East Coast. Oh, by the way, yes, thank you. We had a a caller during the break who mentioned uh, school buses, right? School buses run on diesel. That might be a problem. See, we're not actually locking down the schools. The schools were not shut down. The buildings were closed. See, it's not that the kids aren't, you know, being prevented from going to school. It's just that we can't run the buses to get them there. That's all. Don't you see? That'll be the learning loss is just a construct. Don't you see? Diesel demand continues to be strong after recovering faster from the pandemic slump than other fuels, such as gasoline, according to refiners. So this is a, this is part of what happened with the pandemic, right? Was they locked us all down. People did not drive. I was one of them. I was getting like six months to the gallon and people were still ordering stuff. So the quote unquote essential workers all still kept working, which meant that people needed deliveries to their palaces of privilege and they would have the essential workers come to drop them off. And then the palace privilege dwellers would uh, then wipe all of the stuff down because, ooh, I don't want the plague rat giving me anything. And then, uh, but all of that stuff had to be delivered, had to be shipped, right? All the raw materials had to be transported. All of that process requires diesel. So that rebounded pretty quickly. Demand went back up after everybody got their COVID checks, their Biden bucks, and everyone was like, ooh, look at me, I got all this money. They went out and bought stuff. That also helped to rebound the diesel prices faster than gasoline. You had a lot of people that refused to go back to work, right? So they were not commuting, so the gasoline prices stayed lower. Then, of course, Biden comes into office and all that gets upended, but whatever. Several factors have combined to deplete U.S. distillate inventories. That's what what they call it, distillate, distillate, uh, which includes diesel and heating oil, which, eh, Mm, that doesn't really sound important. Heating oil? What do you use that for? Anyway, ahead of the winter, the distillate fuel crunch is worsening. U.S. refining capacity is now lower than it was before COVID. I'm going to say that again. U.S. refining capacity is lower now than it was pre-pandemic. Because operable refinery capacity shrank in 2021 for a second consecutive year. We actually have less refinery capacity now. U.S. refiners permanently shut down some refinery capacity at the start of the pandemic when fuel demand plunged, while others closed facilities to convert them to biofuel refineries. Some refineries were under maintenance this autumn. That reduced the availability of products as well. In addition, the U.S. banned imports of all Russian energy products after the invasion of Ukraine, and it hasn't imported any petroleum products from Russia since April. Lower refinery capacity in the U.S. since the pandemic, seasonal maintenance at refineries globally, and a major strike in France have all combined in recent weeks to create a shortage of middle distillates, not only in America, but worldwide. The world is also scrambling for diesel supply in view of the looming EU embargo on Russian fuel imports by sea that's expected to kick in in early February. According to CNBC, 
U.S. diesel reserves at the end of October have never been so low since 1951, with the Northeast most exposed to low levels of diesel stocks. A lot of people don't realize this, but up in the Northeast, a lot of people heat their homes with oil. They get get their oil tanks filled up and it burns the oil. People like me, we're on natural gas, thought that was going to be a great play uh, versus, you know, electricity. But now, eh, not so much. Thanks, Biden. So refiners are trying. They're trying to catch up. Refinery utilization on the East Coast is now at 102.5%. Households in the Northeast who rely on heating for oil space heating will see uh, higher bills somewhere in the neighborhood of about 27% this winter as opposed to last winter. Finally, and again, this is from oilprice.com, headline, the U.S. diesel shortage is worsening. The Biden administration has not ruled out the idea of limiting U.S. fuel exports in order to restore inventories and lower prices. Because that's classic, classic Democrat GovCo, right? That's the way to do it is you're going to ban the exportation of fuels. Refiners are opposed to that idea. They say banning or limiting the export of refined products would likely decrease inventory levels, reduce domestic refining capacity, put upward pressure on consumer fuel prices, and alienate U.S. allies during a time of war. The global head of energy analysis at OPIS, O-P-I-S, named Tom Closa, he said between now and the end of November, if we don't build inventories, the wolf will be at the door. See, this... This is a product of our policies. This is us refusing to be adults. This is us refusing to produce energy, keep it here, uh, and uh, create a system that makes us less reliant on these types of pressures from overseas. And again, at some point, maybe people wake up and realize this. I don't know when that might be, but man, i am got my fingers crossed for it. All right, so Ben Dominich has a piece at uh, Spectator World, I believe it is, spectatorworld.com, uh, which I think the publication is just called The Spectator. Anyway, kitchen tables versus kitchen tablets. Oh, I wish I'd come up with that. It's a great one. The real election divide. He says, he has. It starts off with a quote, carry the word throughout this district. The word we said was true that we do stand for the people who push a grocery cart and worry about the grocery prices, that we do stand for the people who care about this country and their children's future, that every American, no matter how young, no matter how old, whether male or female, black, white, yellow, every Asian, or sorry, every Asian, every American has a right to a voice in Washington. And that voice is appropriately in the Constitution in the House of Representatives. All right, so that's what... Newt Gingrich said in 1978, the grocery cart thing is back in America in a big way. But if that's not all uh, that's but if that's not all that important to you, he says, it's because other things take precedent. 
Think about it as the difference between the people who go to the kitchen table with their screens still in their hand and the people who turn them off. There are a lot of people today who don't have kitchen tables anymore, at least as they exist in the popular imagination, right? Where normal, hardworking moms and dads pour over the bills, sweat the rent, figure out the next day's schedule in the same place where they feed the kids. For those who keep the screens on, and the tablets open morning, noon, and night, well, things are different. Eating a meal while on your phone, refreshing constantly, carries all the ups and downs of social media into the space where workaday concerns once ruled. Everywhere you go, the same people are gaining access to your mind, continuing a fervent, unending, woke conversation where climate change and pronouns and threats to democracy are constant. And despite what you think, or may think, the vast majority of American families still turn off their screens when they sit down to dinner. There are even ad campaigns for Internet products built around parental controls to switch off the Wi-Fi to bring families together. And last night's speech from President Biden, it's awfully hard to understand if you're not an affluent, woke Democrat with kitchen tablet concerns. A normal working American could easily ask, Why is he talking about these issues this way? And what does he stand to gain from it? Why is he trying to make the case that his course of action is right? Why isn't he doing that? Why is he even talking about and who at this late stage in the election is he trying to convince? Right. This is the exact question I asked. Who's he talking to? It is reasonable for those on kitchen tablets to think abortion was going to be the decisive issue of 2022. But those at kitchen tables know it's that the cost of diapers has gone up more than 180% since Biden took office. The kitchen tablet does its job. The kitchen table, the concerns it carries, and the people around it fade away. The tablet takes you to a different place and it keeps you there. And that's how you lose touch with what matters to those pushing the grocery carts. Also... Nate Hockman writing a National Review. Politically motivated efforts to ban books, we have been gravely informed for months, are yet another harbinger of the sweeping right-wing authoritarian threat to American democracy. Except, of course, when those efforts come from the left. Hundreds of Penguin Random House staffers, because that was, I guess, a merger between Penguin Publishing and Random House Publishing, so they kept both names for some stupid reason. Penguin Random House, just random anyway uh, and other literary professionals are calling on the publishing company to cut ties with supreme court justice amy coney barrett and to cancel her upcoming book these are the same people that are so outraged that you can't uh get a copy of uh this book is gay when you're a fifth grader right these are the people that are so outraged that you can't read about the gay penguins in kindergarten that they can't do the drag queen story hours to your second grader, right? The publishing house came under fire after an open letter bearing 520 signatures was made public. The dissenters call for a better balance of freedom of speech and duty of care. They cite Penguin's $2 million book deal with Coney Barrett as, quote, a case where a corporation has privately funded the destruction of human rights with obscene profits. Really? 
really. The destruction of human rights by by publishing by publishing a biography from Amy Coney Barrett or an autobiography, I should say. The letter's endorsers took particular issue with the justices' vote earlier this year to, yes, overturn Roe v. Wade. Get off the tablets! A move that seems to come in direct conflict with what her book is reportedly about, quote, how judges are not supposed to bring their personal feelings into how they rule. Do these people, do they not even read, they didn't even read the opinions? Is that the deal? They just don't even read the Supreme Court opinions? Hawkman writes that the full open letter titled, We Dissent, is even more di- uh, ridiculous than you might expect. It's a tour de force of philosophically incoherent, vaguely post-structuralist word salad. The kind of argument that isn't really meant to convince, but rather to serve as a bare minimum public justification for the raw exercise of power. For decades, the left has operated on the implicit and sometimes explicit assumption that true authoritarianism can only ever come from the right. This is yet another example that that assumption is incorrect. All right. That is it for us today. Thanks for hanging out. I do appreciate it. Brett Winterbill coming up next. Stick around. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. (laughs) 